Welcome to this podcast from the Vessel Collective Church here in the heart of Texas. Our mission is to be vessels of the living Christ, set apart for His purpose and His kingdom. We thank you for sharing in this message here today. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome and happy Palm Sunday. Thank you guys for being here this morning. If I don't know you, my name is Jake. I serve as the lead pastor here at The Vessel, and it is Palm Sunday. Can we thank our boy band up here for this morning? You guys, is anyone, I don't know if y'all remember Hanson, the the boy band Hanson, but I think if Hanson just continued to graduate, that is you guys, so thank y'all. I'm not sure which brother is which or what you do, but man, thank y'all for leading this morning. It was cool because last weekend we had most of our female worship team up here and then some of the guys this morning. And it's been, that's one thing I've loved here at The Vessel is that we've got so many people that serve in so many different capacities and gifts and skills and passions about things that really makes the church. And I've been reminded of that in a sweet way this week as we enter into Palm Sunday, which is a very traditional and liturgical Sunday that maybe you grew up celebrating and, and, and remember from a kid. I remember they would hand out palm leaves as kids and we would do stuff in Sunday school and then bring them into church with us for big church. And so uh, just thank y'all for being the church and being the body. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for it. And I remember... Remember this week, just the reminder that we, what we call church and what the world thinks about as church is very different than what it actually is. And a lot of times we think, man, the Sunday gathering and coming into this place and meeting in this room in an hour and 15 minutes or so is church. But really, in church is a body of people. And as we sang that, that old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, I know the things that are going on in our body right now, in our church, and, and even in just this this small congregation uh, and people that, that the Lord and we call the vessel, like I know your stories. I know that there's lots of us that are walking through hard things. I know that there, there are some of us that are walking through sickness in our, in our own lives or sickness with our family. That, that's us. We've been praying for my mother-in-law for three years now that's on this journey with uh, melanoma. I know that there are people in this room that have had family members pass re- recently and you're mourning that and trying to walk through that and how to care for your parents and your loved ones. I know that there are people that are going through divorce stuff right now and relational stuff. I know that there are families that are hurting because they've got family members that are in other countries. I know that there are people that are looking for jobs, people that are wanting a new job. And I've just reminded this week of like, that's like what we walk through and what we do in this world is hard. It is hard. We've got kids in the room and I wanna say that to you, like for our kids is that life is hard and it is not about living a life and being a Christian, making everything okay and making all of our circumstances of life okay. But it's about that, the truth that is well in my soul because of what Jesus did for me. And as we celebrate this morning, we've been in this series of the gospel, is truly looking at what is the gospel? What do we say is true about Jesus? What is it that we believe? What have we put our trust and our faith and our life in? And not just in a moment, but every day and every moment that we go through. The troubles in our life, the struggles that we have, the things that we're walking through right now, how's the gospel ring as true for us now as it did however many years or days or weeks ago that we gave our life to the Lord. And it's about this victory that we have in Jesus. And so that's really what Palm Sunday is. 
It's just a celebration of the gospel and the victory that we have in the gospel. And so as we, as we look this morning, as we, we look this morning, this morning and the next Sunday, this is a time where we just really put on display and, and profess the truth about Jesus. And so I will also, uh, as Dustin did, plug Easter next week. If you haven't RSVP'd, please RSVP. That's really important so we know how many people are coming. And so if there's a change in the weather, be praying for good weather. So far, so good uh, that it's going to be beautiful. But if there's a change and we need to move, we can email and let you know of that. And then we've got these postcards. There's probably a hundred plus on this table. And I would love for you to take every single one of them today. So, so on this guest services table, as you walk out, please take a postcard. And I'm not asking you to go solicit from door to door, but there are people in your life that know you, that love you, that know you care about them, that if you give this to them, they will come and celebrate Easter and be there with you as we go downtown. Uh, it's gonna be a really fun morning. Uh, Dustin said, uh, mentioned something about how many chairs that we need to bring. That's actually on you. We're gonna email you this week and ask you to bring a chair and a blanket. There's some grass area out there, there's shade. Um, it's not gonna look like this, right? We're not gonna have rows of chairs with the screen. It's gonna look like a, a celebration of, of who Jesus is and the, and the, the story of Easter and what Jesus did uh, on the cross for our sins and the resurrection we have in Christ. So please take these cards, invite them. I've invited my neighbors. Uh, I've got uh, several neighbors that are, that are coming and they're, they're coming because again, I have relationship with them. I didn't go door to door. I say, hey, I've lived here for you know, eight years now and I know I've never met you, but come to Easter with me, right? They're people that I have relationship with. So please RSCP, I'm so excited about next weekend. It's 10 o'clock, it's right off Main Street. Um, we're also gonna have a photographer there that's gonna be taking family pictures. So uh, if you wanna come all coordinate an Easter ready, don't worry, it's not gonna say Vessel Easter 2022. He's gonna take a nice family photo that is beyond just us trying to plug uh, our, our ministry. So uh, we're gonna have a photographer there. We're gonna have things for the kids to do. We're gonna have bubbles. We're gonna, you know, lamppost coffee next door is gonna be open. So it is gonna be a fun and celebratory Sunday. So I really invite you to be there. And so as, as, we, as we enter into that time, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, we're gonna read through this story of um, Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jerusalem this morning and why we have victory in that. And when we say that, that Jesus came and conquered death and conquered sin on the cross, that this moment of Jesus entering in is really significant. Last week, we, we talked about kind of before this, Jesus heals the blind man and arguably the grossest of miracles where he spit in the ground, he made mud, he put mud on the man's eyes, sent him to the pool of Siloam, said, wash out your eyes. The Pharisees were all upset because he did this on the Sabbath not focusing on the miracle. And so his, his ministry at this point in scripture takes a very dramatic turn. And, and before kind of these moments that Jesus begins this, this kind of progression and this march into Jerusalem to conquer death, what the people didn't realize is to conquer death, Jesus had to become death. To conquer our sins, Jesus had to bear the weight of our sins. And so when they think about this king coming in, this isn't how they pictured it. It is not how Hollywood would romanticize this conquering king that comes to set free God's people for all time. And so as he comes in, he, his, his ministry starts, and, and Jesus has this very kind of meek and personal ministry. And, and Jesus talks about that. It's very quiet. There's a lot of times when Jesus does things or performs miracles, he doesn't tell the people who he is. 
He, and, and there's other times where he tells them, in fact, don't say anything. Don't go back and tell people what has happened to you. You think about the woman at the well. It's very personal. It's Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. You think about even him feeding the 5,000, which is a very public miracle. After he fed the 5,000, what did he do? He retreated. Like he retreated to the other side of the lake before they could find him. And they, of course, they chase after him. Even thinking about in John chapter three, you know, for God so loved the world, he tells this to Nicodemus in a private conversation. So Jesus' ministry for, for a long time has been very private, very personal, very meek and very quiet. And he's often telling people not to share who's done this. And so at this point in scripture, it shifts dramatically from this very kind of quiet and personal ministry to this very public and this very bold and almost brash, like he goes into the temples and is overturning tables, right? This this bold and brash and this very public ministry. You think about as he begins to come into Jerusalem, the story of Zacchaeus, and he says, come out, out of that tree, I'm standing at your house today. That's very public, is that he stayed at this sinner's house. You think about it, there's these two blind men that come along and their friends bring him and he heals them instantly. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead, which kind of begins all this, which is maybe his most famous, I don't know how more, a miracle is more miraculous and it's certainly not, but in a lot of ways, him raising Lazarus from the dead is this magnificent moment. Um, and, and his ministry goes very public and there's almost this urgency to it. So as we read, I want you to keep that in mind that Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem, there's a significant, significant shift in what he's been doing. And so as we, as we jump in this morning, I want to pray. And so if you would, I'm going to ask you to stand up. And I'm going to read this verse out of Romans chapter 1 that, that talks about the power and the victory that we have in the gospel. And this is, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome. So I just want to read that to us. And, and like as a reminder to us and speak it over us as, a, as the truth about the gospel in our lives. And even as we look at Easter and as I'm trying to encourage you to, to take an Easter thing, this isn't so we can plug the vessel or become a bigger, better church. It's so that we can tell people about the gospel of Christ. Romans chapter one, verse 15 and 16 say this. It says, this is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome or Round Rock, or Georgetown, or Cedar Park, or Hutto, or the ends of the earth. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith, Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, God, for the truth of who you are, for the things that you did, God, for the faith that we put in the promises of scripture. And Lord, as, as our neighbors and our community turn their eyes and attention towards you, even for a moment, Lord, will we be faithful uh, to, to have the same spirit of not being ashamed of the gospel, knowing that the power that you displayed on the cross to conquer sin and death was done for everyone. God, I just pray that during this time, Lord, as we read the story of you coming into Jerusalem and fulfilling these prophecies, God, would you speak to our hearts or would you use me to um, silence my voice and amplify your own, God? I invite you into this time and pray these things in your name, amen. You can be seated. 
So as Jesus, we're going to be reading from Matthew uh, chapter 21 as Jesus comes in. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 21. It's also, we're going to read a little bit from Luke chapter 19 as well. So if you want to read that these gospels both kind of lay out what this Palm Sunday and this kind of entry into Jerusalem looks like. So in Matthew chapter 21, I'll just read through it um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. It says this, as they approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, and they came to Bethphage. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. He took, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks upon them for Jesus to sit on. So they're, they're entering into Jerusalem. They've kind of been on this multi-day march. Jesus has gotten word about Lazarus has come uh, for this, this miracle. And as he's going into Jerusalem, he sends these two disciples uh, into Jerusalem to get this donkey and to bring it out. And this is, this is really important because it fulfills this prophecy. And some very specific instruction that he gets. And we're going to get into that later. And, and Luke tells us that the colt has never been ridden on. In Luke uh, chapter 19, verse 30 says, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. So they get this donkey. They put their cloaks upon this donkey. And Jesus rides this donkey into Jerusalem. And so for them, for these Jewish people that have been seeking and praying, it's, it's, this, it's this image of this king. And when we think about this conquering king that's coming to, to, to set people free, to set people from bondage, we have this picture of this knight on this horse that's coming to win this victory, which is exactly what Jesus is doing, but it looks very different than probably what they anticipated. A donkey and the, the foal of a donkey who's never been ridden with a cloak on its back is probably not the most intimidating um, conquering hero that we may think. Verse eight says this, a very large cloud spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, which is why we call it Palm Sunday. Revelation chapter seven tells us that in the end, uh, God's people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, we talked about the nations, will cut and wave what? They'll wave palm branches. It's very symbolic of this, very, this same moment that's happening here. And so they spread them out on the road. The crowds went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. And so as we see Jesus coming in to claim this victory, on the cross and to conquer sin and death for us and for the sins of the world, for all mankind. We, we think about the power that's in that. And a lot of times, like I said, we, we have this image that looks very different and that's very typical of Jesus. He, he, was, he was constantly the, the, the opposite of what they anticipated it would be. And so I think when we consider that for ourselves and for our lives and, and as a Christ follower, as someone who is somewhat interested in Jesus, uh, there's a few things that I think we underestimate that tells us from this story. And as Christ followers, I think we undervalue and underestimate these things in our life. And so I just wanna look at a few things here. And so I think one thing that we do is we underestimate the power of obedience. We underestimate the power of obedience. 
Good job, Sloney. Uh, and so this journey with Jerusalem starts with this act of obedience from the disciples. So if you follow Jesus at any point in your life, obedience has, has become a part of that, whether you like it or not. And I think that a lot of times we think about submission and obedience as this negative thing. And so verse one says, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Verse six says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And I love that verse six. Man, the disciples did and went, went and did as Jesus had instructed them. It's so simple. It's so profound. It's so powerful. The obedience of the disciples. And let me extend, like, can we give these guys grace? Because this wasn't always the case. There were time and time again where they were not obedient, where they failed, where they asked questions, where they said, Jesus, are you sure? Is this the right idea? Is this what we should be doing? But after following Jesus and, and doing ministry with him for three years, we see them and, and simply and powerfully say the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And I wonder, like for us as a body of Christ and for us as Christians and Christ followers, and what if, what if verse six described our life? What if what people said about us as Christ followers that they went and did as Jesus had instructed them and how powerful and what the Lord would do if we had that level of obedience? And I know that this seems like a unnecessary or insignificant detail. Like if you're just reading through this story, if you're like, you've cracked scripture for the first time, you're in Matthew, you've heard something about this, and now you get to this part in scripture and you think, why does this matter? Like, what do we care that he rode in on a donkey? Why, do we, why does it matter to leave this detail in there? But this is really significant. And this is actually a really profound fulfillment of a prophecy that was prophesied uh, by Zechariah generations before. Uh, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is a big deal. What Jesus did and their faithfulness to do, this, to do this was a big deal. And Jesus knew it. As a Jew, he knew it. As a son of God, he knew it. He knew what an important step this was. You know, sometimes I think in our lives, it's easy to dismiss little things as insignificant or unnecessary. And when we think about being obedient to the Lord, if you've ever had a moment where God has stirred something in your heart that doesn't sound very significant, but to stir in your heart to do something that, that may not seem very profound, you never know what the Lord is gonna do with that and how he's gonna use it. But the fulfillment of this, of this prophecy was important and it depended on the disciples' obedience. If they wouldn't have done this, if they would have said, hey, can we just walk or maybe we'll grab a horse that'll be quicker. There's one right there. I mean, whatever it would be, it might be easier. They, this prophecy would have never been fulfilled. And so, and I wanna like give some, some context. In the last 10 years of church or so that I look at the church landscape, like the idea of prophetic ministry has become a really hot like buzzword within Christian and evangelical culture. It's like, man, do we have a prophetic ministry? And, and people say, man, I got this prophetic word from the Lord, or, you know, God has given me this prophetic vision over A, B, or C. And, and every time they go to church, they receive this prophecy or this prophetic vision that God's gonna do this in my life. And I just wanna say, like, 
And I don't want to just, not to just dump on, on that culture, but I want to say, this is not that. Like, this is not like, hey, one guy said, hey, I've got this prophetic vision that God, Jesus is going to ride in on. This is not that. This is a prophet from God that, that, that gave this prophecy of this Savior and this Messiah coming in on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. And, and coming in, and that's really significant because like this was something that, hey, do you, it wasn't like, hey, do you remember that guy said, this was something they wrote down. This was a covenant, I promised from God that this would be a sign and a symbol and that the Lord would fulfill, that, would fulfill this when the time was right. They knew this was important. They saw this as a sign. And I just wanna say like when we say the word prophetic or like you hear that, this is not that. This is God's prophet coming to give this image of what it would look like when Jesus came in. So for us and for scripture, here's what obedience to God looks like. Here's what obedience to God looks like. First, obedience to God looks like taking a step. Just taking a step, responding to what the Lord has put into your heart. And again, that may feel insignificant at a time in your life, whatever it is that the Lord's prompting you to do, but obedience to the Lord and the power that's in obedience is really just taking a step. The Lord putting something on your heart. A friend challenging, asking you to do something and being faithful to take a step of obedience. Then do it again, right? Like you take a step of obedience once and then you do it again. You repeat the process. It's just walking in obedience one step after another. Scripture says this, it says, but those, this is from Isaiah chapter 40 at the end of this, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And I think we read this verse and we don't realize that this is backwards. Like how we imagine the old adage is, hey, you gotta crawl before you walk, you gotta walk before you run. This is backwards. What Isaiah says, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And let me tell you, all those things are true about your journey in your life with Jesus. There will be moments in your obedience and your, your relationship with Christ where you will soar right? You will soar on wings like eagle. You will be on fire and things will be significant and you will see the Lord's hand and evidence in your life all the time. There will be times where you will run and not grow weary, where you will sprint and go after something. But the lot of what it looks like to be obedient to Christ is to walk and not faint. That's obedience. Is that day after day, step by step, little moments of obedience to say yes to the Lord and then to do it again and to do it again and you begin to walk, repeating steps of obedience until it becomes a journey, a journey in obedience. I don't know if you've ever been hiking. I'm assuming everyone in here has been hiking before. But um, Shane, I love to, like if we go on vacation, to go hiking. And so one of the things that we've learned, especially doing larger hikes, is, is what it looks like to to continue to walk down the path and one step in front of the other. And I always advocate, I'm like, hey, let's take, let's take frequent breaks, but short breaks. We're not gonna sit down, we're not gonna wait too long. Let's walk, 
Let's take a rest and let's continue to walk one step in front of the other. Because when you stop and you sit down, your legs tense up, it's harder to get back up and to continue going. And I'm not advocating that you take a rest in your relationship with the Lord. Like, hey, you've been obedient, you know? Like, hey, take a break, you know? I'm not advocating for like that. But what I am saying is that when we do this and we have this process, it's obedience after obedience after obedience after obedience that begins a journey. And I think the pandemic did this to people. That people were walking in this relationship with the Lord and then all of a sudden we're home and we're out of the rhythm and we're out of the routine and we've sat down, our legs have tensed up. And to start that journey again is hard. To get back in the process is difficult. Let me tell you a few things as we move on to what, what obedience is not. And this is as important as what obedience is. Obedience, first of all, is not legalism. It's not legalism. It's not following the steps or the rules in order to get closer to Jesus, in order to be more righteous, more loved by God, more saved. This is a pass-fail thing when it comes to Jesus. It is a pass-fail thing. This is not a, hey, you've got to work really hard so that you get closer to God. That is not what I'm saying. So legalism tells us that we've got to work hard or we're not going to get X, Y, Z. It takes the power of obedience out of the hand of God and puts it in the hand of man. Obedience is also not without grace. It's not without grace, meaning that you will step off the path. You will wander from the, from the journey. You will exercise disobedience in your life. That's, it happens. And this is not without grace. That doesn't mean that you failed. That doesn't mean that all is ruined and all is lost. When Shay and I, a few years ago, we hiked, uh, we did a 14 hours, the first one that we did together. And Shay's awesome. She's a great hiker. We hiked all the way to the top. And, and on our way back down, we went down a back route that's not as popular, that's not as common. It's kind of an alternative route, but it was marked on the trail. And so as we're going down, we're looking down our feet, we're walking, we're talking. It's, it's, in some ways it's easier to come down, in other ways it's harder. And so we're not paying attention. We look up and things are really hard where we're walking. And we look up, I'm like, wait a minute. I look up and I'm like, we're off the path. And you can see the path. It's like 50 yards down and we're not in danger. It's not bad. But I'm like, oh, okay, we wandered off the path. We missed a turn. We missed a direction, whatever it was. And so we had to work to get back to the path, right? And so I say that to say like, we all wander off that. We all get off the journey. We all exercise disobedience in our life. You think about dieting or exercise, like someone that's exercising or trying to, to diet or whatever it may be, it's not the, the day that you fail or the day that you don't work out or the day that you don't eat right. What is it? It's the next day. That's what breaks it. It's not whether or not you're gonna fail to exercise or, or fail to diet. It's the day after do you decide to begin again? Or do you think, well, I've already failed. This is no good, Right. And so these disciples, they did this all the time and we can look at their lives. And so there's power in obedience. And I can promise you, every one of us in this room, that there is some moment or some level of obedience that God is asking of you in your life right now. And it might be really small. It might feel really insignificant, but you never know the power of the Lord is gonna do with that and how he's gonna use that to make his name famous and to bring glory and life to someone. We also, not only do we underestimate the power of obedience, we all also underestimate the power of humility. We underestimate the power of humility. Here's the truth, is that humility 
is one of the consistent characteristics of Christ, yet it is a value that is nearly absent from modern Christian culture. Amen? Man, like you look at the life of Jesus and he has these humble moments after humble moments and this characteristic is perfected in Jesus, yet we look around at Christian culture and and humility is absence. And so I, I define humility as having an authentic view of oneself and light of others and before God to having an authentic view of oneself in light of others and before God. And, and granted, that is the Jake definition. That's not Merriam-Webster. I know it probably sounds like it, but it is not. But it gives us a clear picture of why it doesn't exist in the church. And look at the, the posture of humility that's perfected in Jesus in this picture of him riding into Jerusalem. Uh, it says this in verse seven, they, bought, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the roads while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is not a glamorous uh, moment. This isn't how uh, any Hollywood director would write it out. And there's two adjectives that describe Jesus in this moment. There's two adjectives that describe him in this moment coming in. It's gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. So if you're thinking about a conquering king or a hero that's coming in to set you would not choose gentle or lowly to describe those. Gentle in the Greek literally means mildness of disposition, gentleness in spirit, meekness. And we see in scripture, this value is celebrated. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the lowly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we see this in scripture and does anyone, want to, does anyone want to be called meek? Does anyone want to be described as poor in spirit? No, certainly not. Because we don't have a high value of humility. Humility is one of our core values here at the vessel. And it is the hardest core value because we're not claiming that we are this perfection of humility, but we're claiming that it's an important value for us. And we're gonna guard and protect and desire God to humble us as a church to make us humble as a body of Christ. The word lowly means poor, afflicted, humble, wretched. That's the biblical definition of what lowly means. Now tell me, does that sound like some sort of conquering hero? Poor, wretched, lowly, humble, afflicted. But those are the two adjectives to describe Jesus. And man, if you went out and said, hey, man, uh, Jay Shell, that's my neighbor. I'm gonna invite him this week. I've already invited you. Jay, I want you to come, man. I'd love for y'all to join us for Easter. If your family is free on this Sunday, you'll love the vessel, man. We're lowly, afflicted, gentle. We're, we're wretched. We're meek. We're poor in spirit. I mean, he's like, really? All right, right? That's not how we would describe ourselves. We're like, man, it's awesome. Our music is great. We do all this great stuff and yada, yada, yada. We try to, boost ourselves up. But biblically, humility is a huge value. And, and in juxtaposition, uh, there's, there's this infamous pastor uh, when talking about ministry of church, he said this about the ministry of his church. He said, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the bus referring to his ministry um, by name. There's a pile of dead bodies behind the bus of our church. And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. By God's grace, it will be a mountain of dead bodies by the time we're done. 
how is that? That's wrong. That's anti-Jesus. I heard another quote this week from a pastor that was, that was ranting and raving. And forgive me, if, if you want me to rant and rave, I'm not going to do that. He was ranting and raving. He said, and somebody said, why don't you preach like Jesus? He said, because I couldn't sell tickets if I did. I think, man, like, like that is broken. And while it's easy to cherry pick this infamous quote, this is a sentiment that's across Christian culture. And you wonder why the world looks at the church and says, yeah, I'm good. And why it looks so different from Jesus. But here's the problem. Here's the truth. We can't control the humility of others. And certainly that's not humility. It's easy for us to look and point and say, that's wrong. That's not humble. That's arrogant. That's prideful. That's egotistical. But we can't change them. But we can, as Christ followers and as a church, seek humility for ourselves and be different. And it's always easy to point it out in another. God promises in scripture that he will exalt the humble and he will humble the proud. So as we see that going on, it's easy. And I, I'm, I'm telling you for myself, it's easy to get spun up and to get hurt or angry about that. But we've got to let the Lord deal with that because he says and he promises he will humble the proud. I don't know if you want to be humbled by the Lord, but I do not. Like, like I would rather the first part, exalt the humble. And not to say that we're humbling ourselves just so that we can be exalted because now you're not humble and you're gonna be humble. Anyways, it's this great circle. Humility is this, is, is when we look at ourselves, it's humility is having an authentic view of oneself. When we think about it, I defined it as this. Humility is having an authentic view of oneself in light of others and before God. So if we're gonna have an authentic view of oneself, I'm not talking about false humility because false humility is just pride disguised as humility. I'm talking about true humility, one before God, before God. And I think that this actually begins before you have a relationship with Jesus. That you can't approach the cross, you can't approach a relationship with Jesus if you don't first humble yourselves. If you realize that you are in need of a savior, that your relationship with Jesus begins at a moment of humility, realizing your need before God. It's not just before God, but it's also in light of others. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments to seek humility in light of others, not only to know what is true about ourselves, but also what is true about others. It begins us to help us to see the world differently, to see people how Jesus sees them. And I think that this is truly the test of humility. As you look out to others, as you look to your neighbors and your coworkers, those who have hurt you, those who have let you down, your family members, and do you see them how Jesus sees them? Do you value them not just as as worthy as you are, but as, as more important, better than you. Philippians says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. That's the bar. That's the barometer of what we're asked. What does nothing mean? Do nothing. What does nothing mean? Nothing means nothing, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. That is a hard standard, but that's what humility looks like. 
And Matthew chapter 20 says this, Jesus called them together and said, this is, this is uh, amongst, right before uh, this, this chapter 21 as they're entering in, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his, his life as a ransom for many. You will never choose wrong by serving someone. If you're struggling with humility, you're struggling with valuing someone else as important, as good to yourself, you will never go wrong serving them. My uh, grandmother passed away this past fall and the end was really hard. She had lived this wonderful life. She was 90 something years old. And my mom has four sisters. She's the oldest. And man, at the end of her life, they served her. She wasn't grateful. She wasn't appreciative. She didn't have perspective because she was hurting and she was dying. But they chose to serve her. I mean, I promise you there could have been moments where they said, mom, you're on your own and I'm not gonna help you or I'm not gonna do this or this is wrong. And to puff themselves up, but they decided to humble themselves to consider her better and to serve her. And I promise you at the end of their life, they, they didn't say, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. So wherever you are, if you're struggling with someone in your life and to consider them better than yourselves, I wanna encourage you to serve them. And finally, in this, we see that not only do we underestimate the power of obedience and the power of humility, but we underestimate the power of profession. We underestimate the power of profession. And certainly I don't mean your profession or your job, which is plenty valuable. That, that's not what I'm talking about. But it's the importance and power of the language of the gospel. And we often say, man, we preach ourselves. And I, I see this all the time when I prepare and come up and share what God's put in my heart. And it's for me. It's for me because I'm struggling and what it looks like to profess the truth of the gospel. And so first, I wanna give a, a word of caution uh, and a trigger warning, so to speak, and not to be melodramatic, but this is a very biblical concept, the concept of professing. Dustin had us do it to start our service. Said, hey, we're gonna put scripture up and we're gonna say it out loud together. We're gonna profess the truth about the gospel. And, and this is a really important thing, but it's a very biblical concept that has been, especially in the church, it's been abused by the church and it's been taken out of context and used by its leaders to manipulate, to control people, to be taken and twisted. It's like, hey, I'm gonna profess this thing. I'm gonna say God's gonna do this. I'm gonna speak this into existence. And that's not what I'm talking about. It's using God's word to control or manipulate people that they're leading. And so that's why I say, like we say things like this. And I know that some of us have been hurt or been controlled or manipulated by that. And so I say trigger warning because we've, we've, we've all experienced this. So here's a test when we talk about this and what it looks like for profession and profess the words of the gospel is first to ask the question, does it point towards Jesus? Does what we, what we are saying, does it point towards the Lord or does it point towards us? Does it point towards Jesus or does it point towards ourselves? Romans chapter one says this, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. Talking about those who claim to know everything about Jesus. Second question to ask is, is it filled with the spirit? Does it, is, does it point towards Jesus and is it filled with the Spirit? In Galatians chapter five, you don't have to wonder what fruit is. We call fruit all these different things. Scripture tells us what fruit is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if, if that's not, if it's not full of those things, and if that's not the fruit that it's bearing, and I'm not discounting, man, certainly God uses the gospel and his word and his truth to correct us, to rebuke our lives, to point us in the right direction, to, like I said, get us back on the path. But even then it's done out of love. It's done out of patience and joy. It's kind, it's gentle. It's under self-control. So as we look at this scripture and Jesus writing in, this, this idea of profession and importance. The Gospel of Luke records this same instance, as I mentioned before. And in verse 37, chapter 19, it says this, when he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. Jesus said this, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones themselves will cry out. I mentioned earlier about Jesus' ministry going very public and this crowd begins to praise Jesus. He doesn't silence them. He doesn't quiet them. He lets them profess these truths about who he is and these prophecies are being fulfilled. This, he's riding on this donkey there. He's coming from the house of David. If you wanna get deep into it, Daniel and the timeline to the day is when Jesus is riding in. He's coming from Nazareth. He's coming back to Jerusalem. There are prophecies being fulfilled again and again and again all at once. It's all these things promise in the old scripture, it's like this, they're, they're merging in this beautiful moment where they're all coming together and they're professing these things. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And the Pharisees are, scripture says that they're indignant, that they're angry, that they're offended by what they would say. And he says, rebuke your disciples. And I love this. He says, he tells them, he says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. I love this, man. That is so, I don't know the right church word, awesome. I would say something different. But dude, he just, it's so good. Like rebuke him. He said, the very stones would cry out if they do not. Here's the truth, that when we profess the truth about Jesus, it makes the enemy powerless. Talk about the power of profession. Not only does it, does it bring power in our lives and power of the gospel, but it, it, it makes the enemy powerless over things. That's why they're angry. And I'm not talking about like incantation or babbling on like pagans or we've got to repeat or profess again and again. I'm talking about speaking the truth over ourselves and over others. You know, I've done it. I've been in an authenticity group, which is a men's group here at Vessel. And, and man, that was some of the most powerful things that came out of it. To sit around a table with men, sharing their struggles in their life out loud and to be able to tell them that's wrong. You're, that's not true about yourself. To have guys say, man, I'm really failing as a husband in this and I, I've, I've been a, a not following Jesus or I've struggled with this, this sin and I know I'm rotten and I know I'm no good. Man, the power to sit across to someone and say, that's not true and you're saved, you're forgiven, God loves you, you're, 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 you love your spouse, you love your, your family and that is that is powerful and it's completely disarming to the enemy. The enemy wants us to, to shut down and to tell ourselves that and to be alone. And we need people in life that will tell us the truth about the gospel to ourselves. The enemy says, rebuke your disciples. But again, he says, to keep quiet or the stones 
will cry out. And I know, uh, I don't know if you've ever read much about St. Francis of Assisi. Anyone, any Catholics in the house? Thank you, Jeff. Jeff is a good little Catholic boy, grew up in Catholic school. I love St. Francis uh, and he is awesome. And so there's this legend about him uh, and he's, he's a saint, he's the saint of ecology or something like that. And there's this uh, legend of him that he used to preach to the animals and preach to the birds. Uh, and so there's this, there's this lore that says he's going along with the friends and they're walking along the trail and they come and there's these two trees that are filled with birds. He says, hey, hold on a minute while I go preach the gospel to my sisters, the birds. And the Lord says that the birds surrounded him and none of them left and he just preached the gospel to them. And I know that we're thinking like, whoa, that goes against my theology. That's not right. How can, you know, not all dogs go to heaven. I mean, they're not, you know, like sin and all that sort of stuff. But he preached to these birds and he became like this infamous lore about St. Francis of Assisi. And Psalm 148 says this. It says, praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures in all oceans depth lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all you rulers on the earth, young men, women, old, children, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and in the heavens. And that's powerful. I don't know if you spend any time out this weekend, but just going and standing in the glory of God and the sun. I was driving with the boys this week because Sloan was out and it's, the sun was setting. It was beautiful and it's blinding Keller. He's like, I can't see anything. I said, well, can you see the sun? He's like, uh, yeah. Right, man, the glory of God and what profession looks like. And as they enter in, they're saying this, they're saying Hosanna, which literally means it's an expression that originally was a, was a, a cry for help, save, save us, save me. But, but with scripture and with Jesus and the promised Messiah, it became a war cry, it became a war cry. Hosanna, save us, the one who saves. And to the Pharisees, this is blasphemous, a claim that's only worthy of God. But here is in the power is that this is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was coming in right on this colt to save them, to set them free, to conquer death on the cross, to give forgiveness for their sins for the world. He's coming in. And so as, as we close, I'm gonna invite our worship team. We're gonna, we're gonna close out with some music. And if you wanna sit or you wanna, man, you wanna stand and proclaim the words of this song uh, to do that. As we look about this and we think about the gospel and we think about obedience and we think about humility and we think about profession, that's the gospel. Like, that's it. Like We don't get to Jesus first without humbling ourselves, realizing in the presence of God that I am in need of saving, no matter how good I've done or how hard I try or the goodness in my life, that I am in need of a savior to save me from my sins to give me life where there is death. It's humility. And it starts with us professing our faith in Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross and saying yes to that. And it is a step of obedience. It is the first step of obedience, humbling ourselves, professing who the Lord is, being obedient to that calling. Thank you for joining us this morning for our service. We are publishing content throughout the week for Church at Home through our social media and website. For more information, visit www.vessel.church.